0: All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to get going here today. Revelation chapter 10, maybe Revelation chapter 11. I don't believe it either, but let's see what happens, all right? Here we go. Let's read it first, get our bearings, and then we'll come back and, uh, and digest it a little bit. Revelation 10. Here's what we got. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun. And his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of seven the voices of the seven thunders spoke, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So, um, we're continuing with weirdness, right? Let's paint the picture. Let's get the visual. What do you see? Tell me what you see. Describe it to me. Shout it out. Okay, so we're in the set we're, we're we're hearing a trumpet again. We're in a trumpet call or following a trumpet call and specifically, it's the sixth trumpet, which you'd pick up a little bit earlier, but it alludes to the seventh trumpet that's about to come, so you know you're in six. OK? We got another trumpet blast. We saw that these trumpet blasts, are our military commands in chapter nine. We're calling out things to happen. What else? What do you see? Big angel, little scroll, right? All revolves around a big angel in a little scroll. Describe the angel to me. Okay? He's robed in clouds. Rainbow, roars like a lion, fiery pillar legs, pretty gigantic. One's in the sea, one's in the land. I don't really know how big you have to be to do that, but that strikes me as pretty big. You know, giant kind of scroll, or a giant kind of angel, little kind of scroll. And he's holding the scroll. What happens? So we see this giant angel. This is cool. What happens? God says, go talk to him. Go talk to him. Go talk to him. Yep. And then thunders and um seven thunders right because why not we have seven seals and we have seven trumpets and we have seven of very, other kind of thing in revelation we might as well have seven thunders too right and he hears the thunder and he's about to start writing and he's told don't write down what the thunder is saying because normally thunder does speak would you agree i mean i always hear voices when i hear thunder how about you right? And so go, no, 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 don't write that down. How would you write down the sound of thunder? I mean, what does that look like phonetically, mind you? Like, how do you transpose that? I don't know. But this is, it's weird. This is what's going on. So he sees it, and um, he's told not to write it, but then he's told to go talk to the angel, and he takes the little scroll, right? And then what's he have to do with the scroll? Eat it. Um, Again, the natural thing you would do with a scroll and there's something specific about the taste and effect of this scroll what um what happens with this it's sweet in the mouth sour, sour in the stomach right which I, I think you can kind of maybe equate to because like, you don't taste things in your stomach so if you were to use sour in the stomach as a metaphor is it like you're nauseous on it would you go with that So it tasted really good. You ever have those moments where you're like eating something and it's like, "Wow, that sushi looks really good," but it's been sitting out for nine days. I probably shouldn't eat it, but you do it anyway, and then it goes south, right? Kind of the effect that's happening with this scroll, and uh, maybe that normally happens when you eat paper. I don't know, but that's what's happening here. What is the effect of eating the scroll? So it's not just eating the scroll, but there seems to be a well, seems to be there's a command or an effect that even comes out of it, what does he do as a result of eating the scroll? Prophecy. Prophecy. You need to prophesy to who? Many. How does it put it? Peoples, nations, languages, kings. So there's, can I sum it up this way? There's a lot more work to be done. There's a lot more word of God to be spoken to a lot more people For a reason it doesn't really explain here, but if the words of the prophets have always been oriented around calling people to repentance and to give the people of God hope, it would seem to probably follow that vein. Would you agree? So let's start like reverse uh, unpackaging this. We see that like it, it culminates in prophesying. The prophesying seems to come from eating this scroll, who is clearly held by some divine celestial kind of being, some mighty giant angel. OK? He eats this scroll, and this isn't the first time you see this image in the Bible. Ezekiel is oft also called to eat the scroll, and the scroll is given to him in very image-rich. Form like this. If you ever want to meet a dude who meets angels, read Ezekiel. And something very similar happens there. And it would seem that what this scroll is, is an utterance of God. God has something that he has solidified in writing, if you will. And God wants you to communicate it. That's what prophets do. Prophets are spokespeople for God. And it's given to him on this scroll. And at first, it it let's unpack the metaphor. It tastes good, but it turns the stomach sour, right? H- how would you maybe unpack that? You you go for it. Yeah, Mike. Well, two ways. The message itself, when people first hear it, they come to church, they like, oh, this is great, wonderful, but yeah. then there's the point where they start thinking about it and what it calls them to do and what God actually requires of them. Yeah. So Right, right, you start seeing the implications, maybe, or the weight or the, the consequence, right. And then I was wondering, too, if it meant, well, it's great if you just talk about it, but if you, if you try to hold it in your yourself inside, the message to so, you. If you try to hold it inside and you don't share it and you don't let it out, then you just, it's not going to do anything It's going to make you sick or it's not going to do anybody. any good. Yeah, it basically, if you don't, like, waste byproduct what you eat, you don't really feel that good, right? In, in one way or another. I mean, you can go very literally with that. Um, it's got to come out. Um, it's got to be vomited out. And, and sometimes the word of God, quite honestly, can look, smell, and feel like vomit. Um, have you ever, I mean this sincerely, have you ever come across the word of God where instead of being sweet to the taste, it's like, ew, of course. I mean, how, how do you read the Bible and not come across some of that. But nonetheless, this is the burden that was once put on Ezekiel that we see happening again here. Here's the Word of God. It tastes sweet maybe at first. You think about it. You receive it. It's like, this is great. But then you start seeing what it's going to cost you, what's going to happen to you as a result of carrying this Word, the outplay of what's going to happen in the world because of this message going on. Any number of ways you could arguably go Um, But nonetheless, the prophet has to speak. I love how Jeremiah, another prophet, will talk about this, where he actually, I think it's either Jeremiah 18 or Jeremiah 20, you could look it up on your own, but he actually kind of has this moment where he just kind of comes head-to-head with God, and it literally leads with this line, you deceived me. He comes to God and goes, you deceived me, and I was deceived, and he goes on this rant before God where... He said, I received your word and stepped into your call and did what you told me to do, but it's brought me nothing but misery, so I decided I'm not going to speak your word anymore, forget it, but it burned in me like a fire, it rattled my bones, I couldn't keep it in, so then he starts getting mad at God because he feels set up because it's like I got this from you and I tried to disobey you, but when I disobey you, it's so miserable in its own right that I have to speak it and I'm kind of in this place of utter despair about it because I can't Win, right? I've got to do what you called me to do because I can't live with myself otherwise, even though it's only bringing me misery as a result. Well, this is all floating in the background of Revelation, because remember, Revelation is an Old Testament book. It draws on all of these, imagery, these images and these motifs and these storylines, and it's kind of meant to help inform What's going on and where it's going. Now, a couple more things that I think are just worth noting here to keep the storyline intact. Did you notice how, like, the angel sort of mirrored Jesus? according to the book of Revelation? Do you remember the image you get of Jesus in the very beginning? Like, like he's not described as the meek and mild Jesus holding a lamb, but John gets an image of him in chapter 1, and again in chapters 4 and 5. Do you remember that image? Or is it kind of like ancient history in the mind? Go back and read Genesis chapter 1, Genesis, Revelation chapter 1, and Revelation 4 and 5. And you're going to see that a lot of the images used here of this angel are the same images used of God and specifically used of Christ. So much so that some have postulated and wondered, is the angel, simply because of his size and his grandeur, Christ in the book? Now, I don't think so, but... It certainly is mirroring this image that that what you meet in the first half of the book with Jesus giving the message, now the angel is giving the message. So there's a part one, part two that's happening here. And remember, we saw that One who was called the lion of the tribe of Judah in the beginning. This one roars like a lion. He was described in the beginning as having the rainbow coming out from the throne. This one has a rainbow around his head. Jesus was described as having the feet like burnished fiery bronze. This one has the fiery... I mean, you're getting the parallels, right? And what was the lion of the tribe of Judah holding in his hand in parody of Caesar in the first half of the book? A scroll. Yeah, 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 two and three were the edict form things, but he's holding the scroll, and as the seals were opened on the scroll, we were seeing what God was revealing about things that were happening, taking place, and what's going on behind the scene. Well, now we see not Jesus with a scroll, but a mighty angel with a little scroll. So you, you see the parallel, right? And the the angel is like the biggest creature We have seen so far, would you agree? Like in Revelation? Like, I mean, the size, the grandeur, the weight, maybe next to God Himself on the throne. But He's just holding a little scroll, so what does that say about the line of the tribe of Judah who's holding the big scroll? So you see what the angel is doing to kind of get you to understand Jesus more properly? If the angel is this big, how big is Jesus? If the angel is this mighty, how mighty is Jesus? This angel only holds a little scroll. Look at the scroll that the lion of the tribe of Judah holds Do, do you see what he's doing yeah you got a size yeah, fair enough yeah exactly. The scroll's actually like the size of like you know Europe or something like that, right and yeah, yeah, fair enough, yeah. I think so. messages can messages convey more easily: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and here's the reason why. Did so the scroll was mentioned what? maybe two, three, four times, or whatever, which doesn't sound like a lot. But then when you count up like the amount of verses I just read, it's like 14 verses or something. There's a lot of focus on the scroll. And, and, and at least twice, maybe every time, but it keeps coming back, referring to it as the little scroll. John wants us to see it as the little scroll. Now again, perspective-wise, how little is little? But, but he wants us to understand something, I believe, by little scroll. What we saw with Jesus' scroll is that when it opened up, we went into the seven seals and we went into the seven trumpets. We're in the tail end of the seventh, but but we went into it, and we're seeing things happening at a cataclysmic scale. It's described at at, at this this cosmic scale, and, and history is described in long, broad strokes. So we're seeing everything in what we would call the church age, between Christ's first and Christ's second coming. We, we saw when the sixth seal was opened, we came to the end of the world, right? We've seen when the sixth trumpet was sounded, which is ushering all this in, in this interlude, it, it, it's like Earth was convulsing against itself already now we got like the abyss opening and those those demon locusts with long blonde hair coming out and 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 like like all of this like end of the world kind of stuff happening here's what I think is happening between the first half and back half of Revelation with the scrolls as a device to show us what God has written or ordained about what's to happen you understand what the scroll is doing right have you ever watched a movie or, or a TV show where they're giving you a broad perspective, but then they come and they they zoom in on a particular character within that greater storyline? So you, you've been following this, this broad stroke event in the world, but then... It highlights in and focuses in on something in particular. Have you seen things like that? You got any examples? Like, like what? Genesis does that. Sure, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth in all its array. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve. It focuses in. Great biblical example. What are some others? Yeah. Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings does that. So the first 10 minutes, you open up with this cosmic war against Sauron and his forces, um, if you watch the beginning of Fellowship or Ring, and then it, you focus in on Frodo and Gandalf in this, quote, little adventure that's very significant as part of the whole, something else. Well, they're out there, you know, but uh, look for them when you see them. I think that's what Revelation is doing. We have been seeing God reveal things at a cosmic scale up to this point. But what you're going to see now, and it's really, I think, more evident in retrospect after you read ahead, is that we're going to focus in more specifically on things that these churches are facing in their day and age in the Roman Empire. Certainly, the Roman Empire has been part of everything so far, but just a part in a piece. Everything has been cosmic scale. Now you're going to see the imagery, the detail, the illusion start to drill in even more to very specific Roman imagery and events. And that's going to get significant because we're going to get into a lot of weird stuff like beasts and marks of the beast and what all that kind of stuff. Means We are just going to get this piece of history revealed, and John needs to speak into that. Can it make sense? What's going on here? All right, all right. Um, anything else we got to digest bes- besides a scroll at this point before moving forward? Okay, so, Revelation chapter 11. I should not say this at the outset, but I can't help myself. Most commentators will say that Revelation chapter 11 is the most difficult, confusing chapter in the book of Revelation to figure out. So, what I am going to do... So, so a couple things by that. One, if you're like, I have no idea what's going on, you're in good company, okay? But what I am going to try to do especially in this chapter, is what I have been trying to do with this book generally. Keeping your focus on the forest rather than the trees. There's going to be a lot of details in here and a lot that I'm not going to unpack. But I think if you could see what's going on, even if you don't know every detail intimately, it's going to make kind of sense, so to speak. And this is what's significant. A story is being told. And so what happens in chapter 11 needs to be read in light of things already said. And chapter 10 has ended with a call to prophecy. Prophecy is the umbrella under which all of these things need to be interpreted. Okay? Keep prophets and prophecy in your mind on all of this. Chapter 11, let's go. Let's see where we get ourselves into trouble here. I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. Now I'm going to go through this in slow fashion were hopefully all familiar with the temple in the Old Testament and in Jerusalem. If you're not, basically, there was one central building in the Old Testament nation of Israel, and that was where your sacrifices were to be brought. That's where the Ark of the Covenant resided. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, held the Ten Commandments and, and Aaron's staff and, and, and manna, and, you know, and in and, 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 the Old Testament is very clear about this, and Jesus is very clear about this too. It's where God resided. So it wasn't just a church in a generic sense of a place that you go to sing songs and learn and pray. That the God's presence was actually manifest there in a hyper-specific way that most people don't think about when they think about maybe a church or a synagogue today. And there was only one temple, or only supposed to be one temple. And the main thing that happened at the temple was sacrifice. And you can read a lot of the Old Testament and get way more detail than you probably ever want about how it was to be built and the pattern it was supposed to follow, and all of it is very significant for reasons I'm not going to get into, but that's what we're talking about. Now, second thing to keep in mind, we are arguably reading a book that was written in the 90s A.D. Now let me test your Bible trivia. How is that significant to the Old Testament temple? You know this one? Hmm? It's gone. Where did it go? Did it just walk away? Did they relocate? Romans destroyed it in 70 A.D. Yeah, temple is leveled. Temple is gone. Romans tore it down because of another Jewish revolt in 70 AD. So what he is being asked to measure does not actually physically exist. Got it? Now, in the temple, it was also divided into areas. And the best way to think about these areas is like hazmat zones or or, or, or like biosafety zones or something. I've never like... Seen one of these personally, but like, you know, if you're dealing with maybe like a level four contagion or whatever they call it, and you got to be in like the whole hazmat suit, there's like a series of chambers. We've seen enough movies to at least kind of follow it, right? That you would have to go through to like decontaminate and keep certain people out, like levels of security and levels of decontamination, so to speak, both ways. The temple operated in the exact same way. But instead of something like a biohazard, though it was, um, it was all about holiness. Think about it maybe more like radiation. Um, God is radiant. And that sounds really cool when I say it out of context. But what if I say God is radiation? Well, then you get kind of afraid, don't you? Because no one wants radiation But he is. God just emits and radiates power and glory the same way a chunk of plutonium does or the sun does or something like that. And if those are just little compared to God, imagine how much you're going to get from God. Unholy people like us coming into the presence of a holy God is fundamentally dangerous. Not because God is mean, but when you try to kiss the sun, you just burn up, right? So, the temple is set up to shield and protect that. You have chambers. There is what's called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it was a perfect cube in dimensions, and that's where um, it was said that God would reside. They would say that heaven is God's throne, and the temple, or the Ark, is his footstool. So imagine Dad and the Lazy Boy, right? Right? God is sitting up in heaven, but God is so big that his feet come down to earth and they're propped up, boom, on the ark. That's the imagery it wants you to have. So far, so good. Only the high priest could go into that little section and only once a year, and only on the Day of Atonement carrying blood from the animals sacrificed for the sins of the people, da da da. da, da. It's all kind of like: how do we avoid the unholy, holy mix? Outside of the Holy of Holies, you have the holy area. So Holy of Holies, then holy. Like, really holy? Just holy. And all the priests could go in there, and that's where things like the candelabra were at, the showbread was at, things Revelation has alluded to. If you're like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about, that's okay. Some of you do and I'm just trying to fill in gaps. For those of you who have no clue, spend maybe three minutes on Google right now and just pull up something like Herod's Temple and just start looking at plans and maps and stuff like that. And you go, oh, okay, I get this, I see it. I just want to describe what it's doing. Then outside of the holy area, you had another base stop. So let's say this is the holy of holies, up where the drum is, and let's say this is the holy area. Well, then there would be like an altar right here, and... You couldn't really go past the altar unless you were a priest. So this is another area just for priests. But you, being Jews, would come up to this area, right? And that's where you'd bring the priest and have the exchange, uh, bring your um, offering, your sacrifice, and have the exchange with the priest. But then there was another area, and there was all kinds of areas. One was for women, but more significantly to this text is there was the court of the Gentiles, because maybe you're a Gentile, and maybe as a Gentile you're like, well, dang, we're in Jerusalem, and I heard this temple is pretty grand, and like you know people wanted to do tourism back then too, right? Um, secondly, the temple would sell meat because there's a lot of sacrifices going on. I'm hungry, and that's where you get your meat. So Gentiles want to eat too. Maybe they're doing that. Or maybe you're a Gentile and you've been hearing about this Yahweh, this God of Israel, who seems to be unlike other gods and you're intrigued and you want to learn more. Well, you're welcome to come and do that, but because you are not in the same class as the people of Israel, you're in the court of the Gentiles. And that's interestingly where Jesus did most of his teaching. But you're in the court of the gentiles do you see the layers holy of holies holy area for the priests the people of god and i think mike pointed earlier you'd be in the coffee house if you were in the court of the gentiles i think we should call them the court of the gentiles today at 10 a.m worship and uh you know i think they'd appreciate that Um, but maybe they'll get holy enough to come into this room and what we'll just see we could take bets um i thought that was funny anyway (laughs) You need to know that. John assumes you know this. As much as if I was writing a letter to you about fellowship of faith and writing down areas Well, and you're reading it 2,000 years later going, huh, I don't get it. That, that's what's going on. So he's supposed to measure it. You're given a measuring rod, which is a tape measure. right? It's first century tape measure. Take this measuring rod. Go out and measure the temple of God on the altar. Count the worshipers there. We've done counting already, right, And Revelation 7, we're counting again. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Well, ain't that specific. All right, we'll come back to that. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Ain't that specific. All right? clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's weird. I didn't know two olive trees and two lampstands were standing before the Lord of the earth. And where are these things standing before the earth? Because apparently they are and these prophets are them, right? It's, It's just like, what's going on? If anyone tries to harden them, fire comes down from their mouths and devours their enemies. So that's kind of cool. I would like to see that. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. This is so weird. This is so weird. Go and measure the temple, exclude the outer court, Right? We've numbered the people in, exclude the outer court, and they will be given power to trample. What did it say? Was it the holy city here? Help me. Yeah, they will they will trample the holy city for forty-two months, right? But there's gonna be these two prophets who are equated to these two other, like, you know, lampstands and owl trees and stuff like that, and they can apparently breathe fire, and they're gonna do it for twelve hundred and sixty. Days, and they're going to work all kinds of like plagues as they want. What is going on? Do you have guesses? Are, are you sensing things? I'm not going to put you on the spot on this, but like, like, like what's look, flow, what's flowing here? Yeah invasion or siege, lasted three years. Okay, so we, so l- 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 let's do the math. Invasion or siege, we definitely see conflict again, right? We see conflict between the two prophets and the Gentiles who are going to trample the courts. So our warfare imagery, our conflict imagery is continuing. So, okay, we're on par. We see that this is going to go on for 1260 days or 42 months. And if you've done the math already, you've realized that 1260 days is the same as 42 months. And if you don't believe me, pull out your phone and do the math really quick and use a 30-month day because that is what they used in the ancient world. And you go, what about February? Well, they didn't do it like you did it. Why do you expect them to do it like you did it? They thought in the ancient world and structured the calendar often in 30-day increments. Lunar cycle is about 29 in a little bit days, so about 30 days. It follows the moon pattern, not perfectly, and yes, they had to make up for it, like we got to make up for it. So we have the same period of time. 42 months is 1260 days. They're both doing it for the same period of time, and I would argue at the same time. Now let me push it further. We've met these two prophets John is called to prophesy. He had to eat a scroll. We're already drawing on Ezekiel imagery. A message is going out to many nations, peoples, kingdoms, which would arguably include these Gentiles, right? And we're going to see those dots connect as we go in. But now we start seeing all these weird kinds of things that these two prophets or two witnesses are going to do. And I'll submit to you that you can use that term a little bit interchangeably right now. Because while there is a difference between witnessing and prophesying, and while there is a difference between being a witness and being a prophet, a prophet at some fundamental level is a witness. A prophet has been brought into the throne room of God, this is Old Testament stuff, to see something. He's been privy to the counsel of God. He's watching the celestial beings gather and kind of do court together. And he comes back and he goes, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what they sent me to tell. Isaiah does this. Ezekiel does this. Daniel does this. I mean, you you see this throughout the prophets. Are any of the images related to these prophets reminding you of other things or stories that you might know from the Bible? And if so... Which ones? Not Revelation, but deeper in the Bible. Yeah, back. Yeah, Zach, what do you got? Uh, uh, What's it sound like? Elijah. Elijah Elijah stopped up the rain, and how long did he do it for? Three Three and a half years. Yep. Which is how many months? 42 months, which is how many days? And what did he do it in the midst of? Conflict. Him against a wicked king and queen of Israel Jezebel at conflict he stopped up the reign as a judgment of God against the people of Israel actually in the Elijah story to show the power of God a bunch, a bunch of ba- uh, uh, over and against a bunch of Baal worshipping Israelite rulers so we got the Elijah story going on here what else what else did you see so the plagues whenever you hear like plague imagery doesn't that remind you of Moses Moses would do some of this kind of stuff right some of this stuff felt very direct to Moses so we got some Moses imagery happening here and Moses was also considered a prophet Moses was in fact considered the prophet Moses was the par excellence prophet um, but him like, like him in Elijah were, were, were maybe like I, I, I don't know Foreman and Ali I mean I'm, I'm, I'm like looking for something here they were kind of considered in ancient Israel the two quintessential prophets Moses and Elijah and we're seeing both of their imagery come and smash together here anything else Yeah, so so lampstands. We got lampstands and olive trees. Um, That's actually drawing from a prophet. That's drawing from the prophet Zechariah, who also was one of these crazy prophets. So we have a whole bunch of like Zechariah imagery crashing on in. We're not done yet. Who else? Anything else? Yep, not coming to mind? I'll give you one more. Ezekiel is also called to do this measuring rod experiment. Go out and measure the temple. All right. So we have Zechariah, we have Ezekiel, we have Elijah, we have Moses. We have it on the heels of a scroll being eaten that's leading to prophesying. And I'm just going to leave you with this today because we're out of time, but we will pick it up next week, that what's happening in Revelation 11 is you are getting an amalgamation of all of the prophetic examples or samplings of all the prophetic examples in the Old Testament smashing together and being personified in these two figures. Now, I don't believe that these two figures are a literal two figures that existed then or are coming. They're symbols. They're symbolizing the entire prophetic move and voice of God, which chapter 10 has hopefully set us up for, that we are going to see expressed. So what you want to look for, what what do prophets do? These are the questions you want to ask. What do prophets do? To what effect? What does God want to be the result of what these prophets do? But in reality, what is often the effect, regardless of God's desires? from what the prophets do. And if you keep those questions in your mind and think of all the prophets of old and Jesus is the greatest prophet, which he was, all of these pieces, I think, are gonna start sort of like gelling in some kind of way. But the real goal here is not to solve the symbol, As fun as that is going, oh, I know that one! Because that's cool. But it's only, in, it's only helpful insofar as it leads you to understanding the point of it all or what's happening or what John wants to communicate to the people he 's calling in prophetic form to repentance and hope is it that, That's all smashing together here. I know it's a lot of layers. Welcome to Revelation. If you want hop on pop, you're in the wrong book. Um, that's what this is doing. And I know it's tough. You're not going to get that until your 50th read. Um, And even then, um, that's why people study this book so much, and there's so much disagreement. So we got to land the plane. We'll leave it there. God bless, and uh, thanks for coming on a snowy, um, cold day.